that when I say good morning, that's the clue to kind of settle down and we can get into the... <laughs> Just kidding. Well, I'm excited. We are about to start the book of Revelation this morning. So if you have a, a, a Bible, uh, turn to Revelation chapter 1. If you need a Bible, fill us up and he'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Just raise your hand and I'll get one to you. Uh, really, we're just laying the foundation of our whole study in the book of Revelation this morning. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses. It was exciting. Our nine o'clock uh, service is online. And the kids, I told you this already, the kids on the mission trip was, was uh, um, uh, watching it. But I can see the comments. I, wanted, I was looking at all the comments of, of uh, so it's, it's kind of cool that we have the technology today. But uh, Revelation chapter 1, the first seven verses today. We read starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel and his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. The title of my message this morning is Now Presenting Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in this place, knowing, Lord, that your word is true, that your spirit is here to teach us what your word has to say to us regarding our lives presently, Lord, regarding our future, Lord, regarding things going on in this world. Lord, most of all, you're calling us into a closer relationship with yourself. And so we ask, Lord, your blessing upon upon our time together for attentive ears. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again yet. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today? Help them to see their need for you and to come to you in faith. So we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have good news for all of us. Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen. That deserves an applause. Yeah, I'll give it an applause. We know this because on the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, two men, we read, in white apparel suddenly appeared to the disciples as they're standing around looking up and said to them in Acts 1.11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, whoever these two guys were, whether angels or witnesses spoken of in Bible prophecy, they certainly knew what they were talking about. Jesus Christ was coming back. And here God has given to us 
in the book of Revelation in great detail the events that will lead to his return and long after that into eternity. Now, I remember being about eight or nine years old and we had the family Bible sitting on the coffee table in the family room and, and it was, you know, the big old thick thing and every now and then I would get it out and I would turn to Revelation and I would open it up and I'd read of these, these uh, just, just the scary parts, you know, I'd read about these beasts coming out of the oceans and, and locusts coming out of the smoke of the earth and, and these like scorpion-like creatures with stingers on there. Oh, this is scary. Oh, man. I had no clue what it meant. I'd be awake for, you know, three nights in a row. But it was, it was cool to read. I had no clue what I was talking about. And that's a problem that we see today. This book has been, for the most part, neglected by many because of simply failing to take the time to study it properly. There are seminaries that are no longer teaching it. It's been labeled confusing controversial, hard to understand, so we just won't look at it, but that shouldn't be. Why would God write a letter, include it in his, his book of letters, in his written word, for something that no one could understand? He wouldn't do that. He made it so simple. In fact, he's given to us the divine outline of the book of Revelation. Drop down to verse 19 of chapter 1. John is instructed to write the things which you have seen, the things which are and the things which will take place after this. That's our whole outline for the book of Revelation. Point number one is chapter one. Write the things which you have seen. That's what John is doing here in chapter one. John had seen the Lord. He had walked with him. He, he knew his person, who he was. Point number two is chapters two and three. The Lord says, write the things which are, which are the churches and the church age. It's, it's the focus on the Lord's people, the church. Then point number three in this divine outline of the book of Revelation, found in chapters 4 through 22, write down the things which will take place after this. In other words, 4 through 22, those chapters are the Lord's program. How the end of the age will play out. So you have this divine outline. And as long as we keep this outline in mind as we study this great book, we'll have no problem keeping it simple. Simply teaching the word of God Simply. Listen, believers who do not understand the book of Revelation can become easy prey for those who seek to rob them of its message of comfort and peace and hope. With all that's going on in this world today, we need this message of comfort and hope. So it's for that reason, if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do so, we've divided these seven verses into four simple points. Number one, the word. Number two, the writer. Number three, the reward. And number four, the reigning king. Now, let me give you a little bit of heads up. We're going to spend most of our time on point number one. So if you're looking at your watch and going, we haven't got to those other three points. Number one is going to take the longest. Then we'll kind of go through the rest of those. But number one, our first point is the word. And within that heading, that title, I want to point out four important words that are found in the first three verses. First word I want to point out is found really in verse 1, and it's the word revelation. We read it, say, this uh, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. James Vernon McGee, a late pastor, tells the story of a retired pastor who didn't much agree with his interpretation of the book of Revelation. He says to J. Vernon McGee, well, you just don't know anything about the book of Revelations, using the plural, to which J. Vernon McGee replied, brother, you are absolutely accurate. I know nothing about the book of Revelations. I've never seen that book. 
The retired pastor was astounded and later embarrassed by his own ignorance when he realized it's, a, it's not the book of Revelation, it's the book of Revelation. See, the word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which gives to us our English word apocalypse. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word apocalypse? Well, if you're older, like my generation, maybe think of the old Vietnam movie, The Apocalypse Now, or maybe you think of the Marvel character, you know, Apocalypse, or maybe it brings to mind to you the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the, the destruction and the chaos and the, the catastrophes that they'll bring. But here's the thing about this word, Apocalypse. It's something beautiful. The Greek word apocalypsis is compounded from a verb and a preposition. Apo means away from, and kalupto means to cover or to hide. So the apocalypse, or the revelation, means to take away the covering, to unveil, to reveal. So the word apocalypse is the unveiling, the uncovering, the presentation and majesty and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We see the same words found throughout Scripture in 1 Corinthians 1.7. Paul prays there that you should come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eagerly waiting the unveiling, the uncovering, the presentation, the apocalypse of our Lord Jesus Christ in majesty and glory. Same thought found in 2 Thessalonians 1.7. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Same thought found in 1 Peter 1.7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, when we come to the title of the book, the very first verse, we come to the key of its content. It's not a book that talks about Jesus. It's not a book that talks about concerning him, but it's the, the uncovering the unveiling, the manifestation of the incomparably glorious Son of Jesus Christ. I mean, I picture a bride walking down the aisle and she comes to the front and the father of the bride lifts the veil to reveal this beautiful bride. That's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the lifting of the veil to reveal Jesus. See, the first time Jesus came into this world, he came veiled in flesh. His deity was covered with humanity. His Godhead as well was hidden by his humanity. Once in a while, his deity, deity did shine forth, shine through there on the Mount of Transfiguration, or as in his miraculous works. But most of the time, his glory, the majesty, his deity, the wonder and the marvel of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, was veiled, was covered. Instead, we see that he was born in a stable. He grew up in poverty. He knew what it was like to thirst and to hunger. He was beaten and bruised and crucified on a cross before a mocking crowd. The last time the unbelieving world saw Jesus, they saw him hanging in misery and in anguish upon a cross. They saw him die as a criminal upon that same Roman cross. All of which is a part of God's wonderful, redemptive plan for mankind. See, we're told in Isaiah 53, 5, speaking of Jesus, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So the last we see of the Lord Jesus in an unbelieving world is they see him on a cross. So is that it? Is that all the world is going to see of him dying there upon the cross? Absolutely not. God's great plan is that the same unbelieving, 
blaspheming godless world would one day see the Son of God coming in the fullness and the power of His glory. And men will finally look upon Him as who He really is. See, that's what the book of Revelation is all about, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Not just the unveiling of futuristic events that are going to happen in this world, though it's included in this book. It's not the focus. Jesus is the focus. He's the main reason for the book. And it's seen seen throughout the entirety of this book. Take, for example, in chapters 1 through 3, Jesus is revealed as a high priest ministering to the churches. In chapters 4 and 5, Jesus is is referred to the glorified Lamb of God seated upon His throne, ruling and reigning. Chapters 6 through 18, Jesus is revealed as a judge of all the earth. And in chapter 19, Jesus is revealed as a conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. And then finally, Jesus is revealed in the closing chapter as a bridegroom ushering his bride, the church, into the glorious heavenly city. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I know there are those who today are desperately in need of a revelation of Jesus Christ. They need to know him for the first time in their lives and see him for who he really is, Savior and Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords. We live in a society that desperately needs Jesus Christ. But I know there's also those here today in the sanctuary or who had listened online that need a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ to get to know him better as Savior and Lord. And that will happen as we dig into God's word in the revelation of his son. Let me tell you this, as we do, that's not going to make the devil happy, the enemy happy. The last thing that Satan wants to happen in your life is, is for you to know Jesus better as Savior and Lord. That's why he's caused confusion and fear in people's hearts when it comes to studying the book of Revelation. Caused many people to turn away from even opening this book. And I'll tell you why. Satan doesn't want anyone to read it because it tells of his destruction of him being cast out of heaven forever. He doesn't want anyone to read this because he knows it reveals the ultimate triumph of his number one enemy, Jesus Christ. And the more you study this portion of God's word, the more you'll understand that Satan wants to keep people from the blessings that come from studying this book. In fact, this is the only book in the Bible that promises a special blessing when we take the time to study it together. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads the words of uh, reads and those who hears the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. We'll look at this verse more in a moment, but John says you'll be blessed by the words of this prophecy. And that brings us to our, our second word in our list of words that I want to look at, and that first one is revelation or the apocalypse, the unveiling. The second word is prophecy. Now, before we look specifically at this word prophecy we need to understand that there are those who don't look at the book of Revelation as prophecy. There are those today who hold a completely different view when it comes to interpreting and understanding the book of Revelation. Now, I want to point out three different views, one of which we hold here at Calvary. The first one is called preterism, and maybe you've heard of this. Or the preterist, you might have heard that term. This is a group of people throughout many, many years that have held to the interpretation that all these things written in the book of Revelation have already been fulfilled centuries ago. 
In fact, the word preterist is taken from the Latin word praetor, which means past. So the, the preterists are those who look upon the book of Revelation as having already been fulfilled in the years and the generations that have passed. They believe that the Revelation was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and was fulfilled at that same time. Now, people who hold to this view, they're mostly Roman Catholics. And the reason they hold that view is because of Revelation chapter 17. There, uh, there is a harlot called the Great Whore. She is described as a, a scarlet woman. Uh, uh, she's described as a... Uh, 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 as is spoken of as a false religious system whose location is a, is a city built on seven hills whose spiritual name is, is Babylon. Well, we know that that only speaks of the Roman Catholic Church. But in order to clear their name, the Roman Catholic theologians invented the preterist interpretation of Revelation, saying all these things have already been fulfilled in the days of Nero and that the things written in Revelation have nothing to do with the years to come. Even though the book was written some 20 years after Nero, sometime between 90 and 95 AD, they actually changed the date of the writing of this book to make it fit their view. Their view on the book of Revelation is that it's just a literary curiosity and that's it. According to the preterist view of Revelation, maybe it had a message for those who lived in the days of Nero, but it really has no message for us today. That's preterism. Obviously, we don't hold that view. The next view that's out there is, is what's called the spiritualizers. And you might call them the idealists. They hold the view that the things spoken of in Revelation are supposed to be interpreted spiritually or allegorically, but not literally. What they believe is that the, the book of Revelation does not contain prophecy nor record of events that had already happened like the preterists, but that it's just a picture of of the struggle between the forces of good and evil, and ultimately the forces of good are going to win out over evil. Way too much spiritualizing going on to hold this view. Listen, when God writes something that should be symbolic, he says so. John will write, and he'll say things like, and it was like this, or it was like that, as he's trying to describe, you know, in futuristic things, you know, only in his present day uh, things that he can see. And so from an earthly perspective, but when it's, and when it's literal, it's meant to be taken literal. For example, John will record the millennial reign of Christ in Revelation 20. It says that the devil will be bound for a thousand years. But then it goes on to say, at the end of those thousand years, he will be released. Both the beginning and an end period are starting to finish a literal 1,000 years. Now, it's not the same when the psalmist writes in Psalm 50 that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That doesn't mean he doesn't owe them on a thousand and one hills. That's it. God only owns a thousand hills. Here's the problem with that. And I have a big problem with this view. To take the word of God and spiritualize it is to empty it of its contents. It then can be made to mean whatever you want it to mean. Well, it's spiritual and it means this and that. Listen, I believe the Bible says what it means and means what it says. And if God says it, I believe it. And what's amazing is there are those more and more that are coming out against the literal understanding of Revelation. They're coming out against those who hold this view and those who hold the third view that I believe is the way that God wants us to understand the book of Revelation. If you had to put us in a camp, we'd be called the futurists because most of the things written in the book of Revelation have yet to be fulfilled. They are about to still come to pass. 
For example, there has never been in the history of mankind such terrors and judgments as recorded in the pages of this book. Even in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD with all its, its horrors, they don't even compare with the great worldwide judgment that's going to come upon the world. So this is yet in the future. We read that there's going to come an end to the church age at the end of chapter 3 and from chapter 4 on we'll describe things yet to take place. That's future. It hasn't happened yet. When we read of the coming of our Lord and Him setting up His kingdom upon the earth, that has not happened yet. We read of, of the Lord's return, how He's going to return in power and great glory. That hasn't happened yet. We read of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and our eternal home with God. Not happened yet. All these events are for the future. That's why I believe the futurist is the right understanding of Revelation. I've heard people say, well, these things have all passed, and now we're living in the millennial reign of Christ. Let me tell you, if that's the case, I'm highly disappointed. <laughs> I'm really bummed out. You know, because first, I don't see a lamb lying down with a wolf. The lamb may be lying down by the wolf, but the wolf is getting a dinner in the process. You know, and, and, and I'm certainly not going to let my grandbabies play in a, in a den of cobras, you know, or, or put their hands in a viper's den, as it says they'll be able to do during the millennial reign of Christ. And if Satan is really bound, he's got a very, very, very long chain. You know, and, and, and God's word, if it doesn't mean what it says, then there's no hope for us now or forever. Listen, I choose to believe God's word literally, especially when he says there's going to come a time when there are great things in store for the believer. We as a church, we have so much to look forward to. There's a marriage supper of the Lamb. That's going to be amazing. Then we got the reward ceremony of all things we've done for the Lord upon this earth. A new heaven and a new earth. Great things. I can't wait. And one more reason I believe this is yet in the future because John tells us so. Again, in verse 3, he writes, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hears the words of this prophecy. Not of these things that are already taking place. No, it's a prophecy. God telling the future in advance. It's God's word that predicts the future with 100% accuracy. It's not, however, a compilation of allegorical words that you can spiritualize to mean anything you want it to mean. If God's revealing real things, it's God revealing real things that are really going to happen exactly as he says it will. Listen, when God speaks of the future, it's like us speaking of our past. You would not think that I'm some great prophet if I told you all, hey, you know, there is going to be a, a virus that's going to affect the whole world. It's going to be called the coronavirus. You go, duh, it's already happened. Wake up, Tom, where you been? But you see, God, when he makes a prediction, it, 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 it's so clear, you know, like it's been our past, because he knows the beginning from the end. He sees the future clearer than we see, even see our past. Now, why is that important to us? Because we're living in an age of high anxiety. We're living in an age where people want to know what is going on in the world, what is happening, what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, with all the different opinions about the coronavirus and what's going to happen to us economically, what's going to happen to us globally, where is this world heading right now? Listen, God has laid it all out through prophecy, giving us certain things that we can know without a doubt are actually going to take place. All we have to do is simply study Bible prophecy and we'll see that a lot of the things that God said would happen have already happened, has already taken place. 
Even the headlines that you're currently reading today, you could take right out of the Bible of the remaining prophecies left to be fulfilled. Listen, God has given to us his prophetic word so that when we see these crazy things going on in this world, you can have the confidence knowing how it's all going to end. Jesus wins. Simple conclusion. And yes, our society may get worse and worse. It may get a lot worse because that's what God's word, God's prophecies tell us in the pages of Scripture. We know it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. We know that as we study this book, there's going to come on the world scene a leader who's going to establish a, a one-world economic system, a one-world government, a one-world religion, a caste society, so much more. God will teach us through prophecy of Jesus' second coming of the radical judgment of God that's going to take place upon this earth. We'll be introduced to a group of 144,000 who for all intents and purposes are 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. We'll read what their purpose is. We'll read of when and why the Jews will rebuild their third temple in Jerusalem. And, and we'll see that even today all the preparations have already been made for that temple to be built. These are all prophecies that God's Word tells us will take place. Not if will take place, but will take place. So understand as we look to God's prophetic word, that it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to leave you with more anxiety than when you began, or with a stronger faith than when you began. My prayer obviously is that you'd have more anxiety. No, no, I'm just kidding. More faith. Because there are so many people today who are all freaked out over everything happening in, our, happening in our world. They are full of anxiety. But when you trust in God's prophetic word, he gives you the faith to hang in there, to keep moving forward and keep focusing on and living for Jesus Christ. Next word I want to focus on is the word signified. Again, look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Let's look at that word signified and pronounce it the way it's spelled. Signified. So the word signified actually means to make clear, to cause something to be both specific and clear. I like to call it signs verified. Signified. And the Lord shows us that he does this through signs and symbols. Revelation is, is full of signs and symbols that are both specific and very clear. You know, there, there's vials and bowls and trumpet blasts and weird visions of Jesus. There's the seven churches, seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven spirits, seven thunders, seven year tribulation period, seven being the number of completeness, seven years of complete judgment. These are signs and, and symbols. It portrays things seen and unseen. Things of this world, things of the world yet to come. It portrays angels and demons and, and powers and principalities in the heavenlies. Sometimes these symbols are, are persons and sometimes they're absolutely literal. Now you may say, but why? Why didn't God say, okay, this is how it's going to happen. There's this, this man, his name is going to be whatever, and, and he's going to do this, this, and this, and there's going to be this church, and the name of the church is... Why use symbol? Why use signs? Why not be specific? Well, I believe for three reasons. First and foremost, to provide protection. See, we have to remember that this was written in 95 AD, 95 AD a time when the church was under intense persecution and urged to denounce Christ and proclaim Caesar as Lord. 
So this was written in such a way as to make no sense to those who are enemies of the church. No reason for them to want to destroy this book because it would seem like useless writings to them, fairy tales. But to those who were students of God's word, those who had a grasp of the Old Testament, they would clearly understand what was being written. See, much of the imagery is taken from the Old Testament. In fact, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 360 quotes are from the Old Testament. As I've shared before, and I heard Pastor Bruce share on Wednesday night, that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Second reason God used signs and symbols were to convey information correctly. See, our language can weaken over time. I mean, look at the old King James Version compared to our modern version today. Words take on a whole new meaning today. I think it was just a few years back, but I remember my kids saying when they liked something, oh, Dad, that's sick. Well, who's sick? Do you not feel good? Is there something wrong with you? you know? No, Dad, in your language, it's boss. It's cool, really groovy. Okay, I'm not that old, you guys. But you see, words, they change over time. But signs and symbols they stay the same. Third reason God uses symbolism and signs was that it arouses strong emotions within us. See, the Lord wants only not to affect our minds, but, but also to stir our hearts. It's one thing to say that a dictator is going to appear on the scene from among the people. It's another thing to say, and a beast rose out of the sea. It's one thing to say a world government will be established. It's another thing to call it Babylon the Great. It's one thing to say that the system of government will be evil. It's another thing to say it's going to be like a woman who is drunk from the blood of the saints. Strike that emotion within you. And that's why he uses the signs and the symbols as well as to convey information correctly, provide protection to what God desired to be passed down to us. So when it comes to point number one, the word, we've seen three things. Revelation, prophecy, signified, and the last word I want to talk to you about is a word shortly. Again, look at verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Notice that we don't read these things, these things that might take place. These things that there's a good chance will take place. No, it, it is completely these things must shortly take place. As sure as the sun will shine or the moon will rise, these things will happen. Remember, we looked at this verse last Sunday, um, Isaiah 49, 46, verse 9 and 10. Remember the things I've done in the past, for I alone am God. I'm God and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. And here, John says, these things must shortly take place. Now, this word shortly in the Greek means a point of time subsequent to another point of time with an interval as brief as possible. In the Greek, it, its words is tacos, where we get our English word Taco Bell from. And uh, <laughs> no, it's not. Takeout food. In fact, no, it's not that either. It's where we get our English word tachometer from. It means to accelerate quickly. John is saying that when these things begin to take place, they're going to quickly uh, uh, accelerate once they begin. 
like, like a drag race. You know, you got the red light, the yellow light, and the green light. And the, the engines are revving and, and, and uh, you know, the green is go. And we're living right now with that yellow light. We're living right now uh, in an age that the theologians call an age of grace. It's a time where God is not judging, but he's drawing men and women everywhere to himself. But the light's about to turn green. And as soon as it does, things are going to accelerate very, very quickly. And I'm telling you, that light's ready to turn green. So words, point number one, revelation, prophecy, signified, and shortly. This brings us to our much shorter second point, the writer. Number two, we know that God ultimately is the writer. But the vision was given to John to write them down. This is the Apostle John, the brother of James, the disciple whom uh, Jesus loved. In fact, John spoke of himself in that manner in the Gospels. John was the last and only disciple of the cross, and he with Peter was the first disciple at the empty tomb. He faced heavy persecution. They attempted to kill him by putting, in his, putting him in his big cauldron of, of hot, boiling oil. And he put him, they put him down in there, and he didn't burn. He didn't boil. He's, you know, it's like a jacuzzi. You know, just it sat there, and that just frustrated him all the more. So they said, all right, we're going to banish you to the island of Patmos. Banish him to live out the rest of his life in isolation. But even living well into his 90s in that place of isolation turned into that place of revelation. And let me say this. There are times when the Lord desires us to get into that place of isolation so we can have a revelation of himself. To take that time and spend time in the morning or in the evening in prayer and meditating on God's word. And when you do, times of revelation will come. To be men and women who daily are reading and applying God's word to our lives. Now understand, John is jotting all this down, but the author and the intended readers are listed in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He says, this is written to John to the, and to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So again, Jesus is the author and the intended readers of the seven churches, number seven you see all throughout the pages of prophecy. Seven is sometimes called God's perfect number because it represents completeness or totality. Seven days make a complete week. There's seven notes on a, on a musical scale. There's seven colors in a rainbow. We see a description of seven churches in Asia. And even though there were more than seven churches in Asia at that time, in fact, we just studied the book of Colossians, and that was a church that's not mentioned in Revelation, we, we know that. But, but the number seven actually means a complete church. And then he says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, now who's that? Well, the seven spirits who are before his throne here, and we'll see in Revelation 3, 4, and 5. Again, seven represents a number of completeness. This would uh, indicate the complete work of the Holy Spirit. See, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 11, 2 gives us a sevenfold working of the Holy Spirit. It tells us the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's one. The Spirit of wisdom, that's two. And understanding, that's three. The Spirit of counsel, that's four. And might, that's five. The Spirit of knowledge is six. And the fear of the Lord is number seven. So the seven churches are all the, the churches throughout history and the churches of the day were all spoken uh, by to by Jesus Christ who was and is and is to come through the seven complete workings of the Holy Spirit. And this brings us to our third point. I told you our point should be shorter as we go along. 
the reward. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hears the word of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Again, as I mentioned already, the more you read this book, the more you study this book and understand this book, the more you'll understand about Jesus and about your future. Therefore, you will be blessed. But notice what it says. Those who read it and those who hear it and those who keep it. Now, we're going to read it and we're going to hear it and we're going to study together. But the keeping part, we can't do that together. That's individually. I can't keep it for you and you can't keep it for me. In other words, we must all choose to live in light of eternity or to live only in the temporary for what we can see. But if you're living in the light of eternity, you will be blessed. If you're living to please the Lord, your life's going to be blessed. Your marriage is going to be blessed. Everywhere you go, you're going to be blessed. In fact, Psalm 1911 tells us, Moreover, by them your servant is is warned, and in keeping them there's great reward. Psalm 19, 7 and 8 tells us the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Here's what's really sad. Even though the Bible is available to 97% of the world's population, there are so few who actually take the time to read it. Even though the Bible has been translated into more languages than any other book and is available to more people than any other book in history, it is one of the most unread books there is. See, the blessings come not from owning a Bible, but in the reading and the hearing and the keeping of God's Word. So my prayer is that when we walk away from each one of these studies in the book of Revelation, that we ask ourselves, what did that teach me this morning? How can I apply this to my life today? How can I put into practice what I looked at this morning? Finally, this brings us to our final point, number four, the reigning king. Look at verses four through six. He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Three things I want to point out about the reigning king, our last point, and then we'll close together. First thing, notice his place of authority. Verse 4 tells us it's Jesus who is, who was, and is to come. In other words, he lives in the present, he lives in the past, he lives in the future, and everything in between. He's also called in verse 5 the faithful witness. That word for witness is the Greek word martyrs, where we get our English word martyr from. The original meaning is one who is willing to die for what he believes. And certainly Jesus was willing to die for us to fulfill the plan of the Father. He's the faithful witness of the Father. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, Philip came to Jesus and asked him a question. He said to him, to Jesus, show us the Father and that we that would be sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is that faithful witness of the Father. And what he says is true and you can absolutely count on it. 
In this world, there's so much confusion about who God is and all the differing philosophies and ideas and add to that the biblical illiteracy in the world. It's nice to know we can turn to the pages of Scripture and see who is right, who is true, who is faithful. It's Jesus who is a faithful witness, the one who tells us the truth. And sorry, CNN, Don Lemon, and Chris Cuomo, Jesus wasn't as perfect. And we do need his help from above, in case you saw that interview. Also, verse 5, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, we see. Now, that doesn't mean he's the first one raised from the dead. We know in the Old Testament there were plenty of people raised from the dead, and in the New Testament before Jesus was. But Jesus is the first to die and come back with a new body. You might say he's a prototype of things to come. You know, I love car shows, and I love looking at the prototype of cars that they're putting together. You know, oh, that's going to be kind of cool. Well, Jesus is the prototype of things to come. He's like the one who goes into the water and says, hey, come on in, the water's fine. That's what Jesus did for us. He passed through death and conquered it. And he says, as a believer, there's nothing for you to be afraid of. You don't have to fear death. He's a faithful witness that promises to take us to the other side and give us a new body like his. To me, that's something I'm greatly looking forward to. But that's not all as you hear in those late-night TV commercials. Verse 5, it says, Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Man, that's encouraging today. So much corruption in politics, and, and you hear Supreme Court justices making godless decisions in direct opposition to the Word of God. It's nice to know that God's Word says that Jesus is the true ruler over all the kings, all the Supreme Court justices overall, the presidents, dictators, czars, whatever other title you want to give them. I love Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. The Lord guides it. Jesus is the reigning king, the ruler over the kings of the earth. And one day, I believe one day very soon, he's going to say, move over, boys. Out of the way. It's time for my rule. It's time for my reign upon this earth. And I believe that day is coming soon. I don't think I'm the only one that believes that. So, this, that is his place of authority. Next, as reigning king, we see his plan for redemption. This is great. Look at the end of verse 5. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. First, to him who loved us. I love that. See, everything in a believer's life needs to be based upon the love of Jesus. And it's great to know that even though he knows us thoroughly, through and through, he still loves us. You know, I know there are people in our lives that you find a little harder to love the longer you know them. Or as the saying goes, to dwell above with saints we love, well, that'll be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> because at times... There are relationships that you maybe avoid because of past conflicts or just differing personalities. But Jesus knows us perfectly just the way we are. And he keeps on loving us. And he never breaks off that relationship with us. Now it's been said you can tell the depth of a well by how much rope you have, lowered, have to lower to reach to the bottom. Well, I see how much rope God had to lower in order to save me. Then I see how great he is. And how awesome his love is for us. Listen, never doubt God's love for you. Satan would love to you 
to doubt that love. He would love for you to think, oh, oh, you've been bad. How could God love you? Oh, you failed again. You really blew this time. You've not lived up to his standards. And certainly, man, God doesn't love, you know, when you're bad. God only loves when you're good. Hogwash. Baloney. Jesus loves you no matter what your condition. Romans 5.8. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, even before we get into any of the horrific judgments that are going to take place, Right off the bat, God wants us to know just how much He loves us and what He has done for us. Again, verse 5, He washed us from our sins with His own blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all of our sin. What Jesus Christ did upon that cross for you and for me. The Bible says, For all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. In other words, Jesus Christ died in your place. He died in my place. And because of that, He washes you, He washes me of our sins. That word wash also means to be loosed or to be, to made, to be set free. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. It tells us prior to coming to Christ that we were in the snare of the devil, taken captive to do His will. And many of us, when we were at that place, we had no idea we were in the snare until we come out of that. See, Jesus set us free from that snare. In fact, he himself said in John 8, 36, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. He breaks the shackles of the evil habits in our own lives. He sets us free from the dependencies that we've allowed to harass us and shackle us and limit us. Maybe some of you here have struggled with, with drug dependency or alcohol dependency, or with pornography, or anger, or gossip. And you know what a horrible grip they can get upon your life. But here's the one who frees us from all of our sins. Yes, we are all sinfully dependent people. Yes, we've all been shackled by evil of one sort or another. We've all had selfish attitudes and hot tempers, or lustful passions, or angry self-centered talk. But Jesus' plan for us is complete redemption through His blood that was shed for us upon the cross. Complete forgiveness of your sin, past, present, and yes, even our future sins. Why? Because the price has been paid. Jesus brought redemption to a dying world. And finally, number three, as reigning king, we see God's purpose for the believer. Look at verse six. He's made us kings and priests to His God and Father. Now understand, the priest of the Old Testament they represented the people before God. He was the goal between, between the people and God. Now, Jesus, as believers, he's our great mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, uh, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, Jesus Christ has come to this earth and represented God to us and now has entered into heaven for us so that now he's representing us before the Father. He's our goal between, our mediator between us and the Father. But our purpose as believers is to represent God before the people, to let the people around us see Jesus through our lives, to live for Him, to be that representation of Him so that when people look at your lives, they go, man, there's something different about Him. You see, we're going to see in our studies ahead in the kingdom age, the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, as believers, we're going to be called a kingdom of priests. We are going to be going before Christ for the people and representing Christ to the people. So we need to get going now on it. Now as John is thinking about this, he just can't contain himself so much so that he bursts out in praise. Look at the end of verse 6. 
To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And finally, we close with how we began. We began with Jesus rising into the clouds, the two witnesses saying that he returned in the same way. He left. Verse 7, John says as we close, Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Even so, so be it. Listen, Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth very, very soon, I believe, and he will establish his kingdom upon this earth, and he will be the reigning king. This world we're living in presently is being destroyed very quickly by man. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24:22, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. We're living in those days that are now being shortened. In other words, God is working quickly in these days to save as many people as willing to come and give their lives to Him. This world is a mess. It's going to stay a mess until Jesus returns. I want to close with this story. Maybe you've heard it before. A little boy wanted to spend some time with his dad, but his dad was really busy. And, and so the boy kept talking to his dad till the dad had an idea. He took a magazine with a picture of the world on it and tore it into tiny little pieces and told his son, it's like a puzzle. We'll play together after you put it all back together. Four minutes later, the boy was back. Here's the picture, Dad. It's all done. Let's play. How did you put that so back together so fast, the dad asked. Easy, said the son. On the back of the picture of the world was a picture of a man. I just put the man back together and the world came together as well. Listen, as we close, Jesus is going to return and Jesus will put the world back together. But today, presently, he's seeking to do it one person at a time. My question to you this morning is, are you that person today? Do you need to be put together today? Do you need to be made whole? Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? God desires all men, all women to be saved. He desires all of them to be made whole. And we do that through repenting of our sin, coming to Christ, and allowing Him to take the rule and reign of our lives, surrendering our lives to Him. Because there will come a time, and we'll see as we go through this book, it'll be too late. A time where no more excuses, no questions asked, Jesus will return, and He will rule, and He will reign over all, all the earth. But right now, this morning, He's inviting you to be a part of His kingdom forever. In the last week, we celebrated Independence Day, a day to celebrate the freedoms that we've been given living in such an awesome, great country. And we're thankful for the freedoms that we have because of the sacrifices our family and our forefathers have made for that freedom. But the greatest freedom that we can experience is being freed from the bondage of sin and death. And we have that freedom because of the greatest sacrifice ever made, which was Jesus Christ sacrificing His life so we can have life. Jesus Christ took upon Himself on that cross the sins of each one of us today. He paid the penalty that we so rightly own. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? Jesus Christ is coming soon. And we'll see just how soon if the Lord should tarry in our weeks ahead in our study of this great unveiling of Jesus. But right now, He may be standing at the door of your heart 
and he's knocking and he's offering you an incredible promise of forgiveness if you just open your, the heart, your heart to him. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. I want to give you that opportunity. If you want to know Christ this morning, let's bow our heads and our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you that as believers we have hope, hope of your return, hope of heaven with you, hope of things that that are so great that we have in store for us. But Father, we also recognize that things are going to get worse before they get better. And that this world is going to get an ugly place when, when all the judgment starts to happen, Lord. But you've promised to take those that are yours out of that place of your wrath. But Lord, right now we know there are loved ones. There, we know there are people that don't have this relationship with you. They're going to have to go through some of the things that we're going to read about. Now, Father, there may be some people here this morning that don't have that relationship with you. Or maybe they once had it, Lord, but they've walked away and they're not living for you and it's as if they've never known you. But Lord, you still love them and you still care for them and you want them to come into that relationship with you. So Lord, I pray for them, Lord, that they know you today, that they would come to know you this morning as Lord and Savior. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and Christians are praying, is there anyone here that you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? You want to be born again. You want to know if you were to die today, you would go to heaven. If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? This is just between you and the Lord saying, I want to follow you from this day forward. Just raise your hand. So anybody here, you want to rededicate your your life to Jesus Christ this morning? You know you haven't been living the way you should. You haven't been enjoying that relationship with him. You haven't been an example. You haven't been representing him at all but you recognize it's sin, you want to repent from that sin and rededicate your life to him. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for your love and grace. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities you give to us to represent you before you return. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to go out in the power of your spirit to be the witness that you've called us to be. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's all stand.